Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. We like to keep things evergreen here at Cocktail College. We certainly don't subscribe to none of that terms or seasons nonsense. That being said, it would be remiss of me not to mention that we have had a particular focus on hot drinks recently. Just because the weather is so lousy in New York right now. But chances are, even if you are tuning into this months or years after it publishes, I'm guessing you're doing so because a hot toddy is just what the doctor, or maybe your drunk aunt, ordered. Anyhow, let's focus less on how the sausage gets made and more on how to sizzle those bangers. I'm willing to guess that everyone coming into this has heard of the hot toddy. But have you ever considered the mechanics of this as a cocktail? rather than some simple ingredients thrown together haphazardly. And what about cold toddies? Slings? Or dare I say it, soft toddies? How do they all fit into the equation? Expert advice is, of course, near at hand here at Cocktail College, and it arrives today via Pip Hansen. Pip himself arrives with a whopping quarter century of experience in the hospitality industry, having started out as a barista then switching to bartending in 2005 when he worked with Johnny Michaels at La Belle Vie in Minneapolis. His career then took him to far-flung places and continents with notable stints in Tokyo and London where he was head bartender at four times world's best bar, Artesian. Nowadays, you'll find him back in Minneapolis where he works as the beverage director of O'Shaughnessy Distilling Co., More on that very soon, though, listener, as the time has now come to put on the kettle and dive into 300 years of the boozy, sweet, possibly spiced history of the hot toddy. We're back in the studio. It's Cocktail College. I'm your host, Tim McCurdy, as always. And we're joined today by Pip Hansen. Pip! Thanks for joining us, first of all. And secondly, where do we find you today? Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Um, I've been looking forward to this one in particular. Um, I'm, at, I'm at a distillery in Minneapolis. Uh, it goes by the name of O'Shaughnessy Distilling Company, and we make a whiskey called Keeper's Heart. I'm the beverage director there. So I, I do the bars and the cocktail program, and then I also do brand outreach for specifically the restaurant and bar community. But then also I do sort of all things cocktail related for the brand. Very nice. I like I like that you're in the natural habitat for this show, which is surrounded by booze. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot of it around me right now. <laughs> and I should say as well that I do have a view here out onto uh, you know in the distance, but out onto Fifth Avenue here in New York. And I gotta say, it's a gray day. It's uh, it, it, it's raining. It's damp. It's disgusting. But I tell you what, it is. It's also perfect weather for a hot toddy. It isn't it though? You know, we got, I think we got something like half of our winter's snow just in the first like 10 days of January. Um, we, we just, we've been having an incredible amount of snow. And so I think this is a timely, uh, a timely subject. Dude, and I, I don't mean to try and, you know, really fit into the British stereotype here of people just making small talk about weather. I know, uh, Oscar Wilde wasn't a big fan of that one, I believe. But the thing is, uh, it's it's kind of crazy at the moment right now, right? I think I saw something in wine country over in California 
Some vineyards have hit 90% of their annual rainfall that they would expect for the year already here in January, which is just blows my mind. Yeah, that's, that's kind of heartbreaking. Um, it doesn't sound like that is all going to be all that good for the, the harvest, huh? No. Well, I, no, you know, I don't mean to, I'm definitely not making light of something and not of another, but you know, that is one of the great things about spirits and cocktails that we're getting into here. Because generally speaking, okay, we do overlook the fact that these are ultimately agricultural products in some form, but I think we can reach some more consistency even, you know, with adverse weather conditions. Um, those, as I said before, being perfect for the hot toddy. Mm -hmm. I want to get off the bat here with a question for you, because I said before we started recording, I was like, everyone knows what this drink is, so maybe we don't need to go too much into the components, but you were like, maybe they don't. So, right. so tell me about that thinking there. Well, you know, I guess, firstly, I'm, I'm generally sort of a reductionist, and so I, I tend to take sort of the simplest possible definition of anything. And also, I, I think the toddy is one of those drinks that, you know, if you had, if you had looked at what they called a toddy, say 200 years ago versus now, it would almost be unrecognizable, I think, to your general drinking public. So my, you know, my main, my main criteria for what would make a hot toddy um, would be, I think, first and foremost, that it'd be hot. And secondly, I think it, it needs to contain a little bit of alcohol in it. Otherwise, maybe it's a, you know, some kind of exotic tea, you know, a fancy tea of some kind. So I would say mm -hmm. my two criteria would be, uh, you know, is it hot and is there alcohol in it? I, I think that's a great point. It reminds me, actually, I was uh, texting with someone yesterday and they were talking about how they're doing dry January. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm like, how's that going for you? What are you drinking? Anything interesting? And they say, you know, I need some inspiration here. I'm just drinking hot water, ginger and lemon. And I said, did you just invent the soft toddy? <laughs> yep. So I'm claiming that name right here. That is a good one. Yeah, you could, uh, you could, you could print some money with that, I bet. <laughs> in this day of hard seltzers and what hard everything, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of wild. But yeah, so those are, we referred to those in a previous episode with E.T. on the Bloody Mary. I like to think of them as like non-negotiables. Like these are the things that this drink needs to contain to be a bona fide hot toddy. So you said it needs to be hot, needs to have, uh, you know, some booze in it. Otherwise, like we said, what are we even talking about here? A cup right. of tea or something. right. Uh, yeah, you know, I th I think that's that's my sort of very very reductionist definition. And then, of course, you know, if you've done much of the history, you're going to start, you know, you're going to start arguing about whether, you know, well, well, what about tea? You know, does tea have any place in a hot toddy? Does does lemon have any place in a hot toddy? Um, these are questions that I, I don't think anyone's necessarily all going to agree on. But um, you know, I guess they're worth exploring. Definitely. And definitely that's the kind of thing that we like to get into in this show, especially too, because I'm reminded of the Irish coffee, which is another episode we did recently. And I like looking at these drinks and treating them as cocktails, right? So yeah, you can talk about maybe you'd argue what's used and what's not. But the great thing about this is it allows us to explore each of them and talk about, yes, how can we apply all of the methods and techniques that we use when we look at cold drinks, stirred drinks, shaken drinks. Of course, they're not going to be the same, but how can we apply those to something that's just seems to be just a very, very general or no one really has a definition for. So I, I'm looking forward to maybe coming up with some more concrete guidelines there and also, yeah, doing that exploration. Mm -hmm, definitely. 
I mean, the thing about the hot toddy, I was I was looking up this up uh, as as a great guide. You know, the Oxford Companion that recently, the most recent edition published. I think it was last year. Dave Wondrich, great work there. A ton of amazing contributors to that. There's a decent section in there on the hot toddy, but also toddies in general. And mm-hmm. and this is something that we do see when we look back in history as something of a kind of unofficial or official category of drinks. So I'm wondering if you can start by leading us on that exploration of the history of hot toddies and and, and everything we're really going to talk about in today's episode. Absolutely. Um, so the, the earliest I've heard of anyone recording a toddy in print is in 1750. And that predates the cocktail by about 50 years, I would say, just to kind of put that in perspective. And, uh, you know, they're there is a thing that happens to some of these very old drinks where they get very confused and confusing. So what I mean by that is there's another drink called the sling right? Um, that was very, very similar in style. Um, and, and I guess at this point it's probably worth, um, you know, defining what that style is. And, and so when we're, you know, when we're talking about a, a toddy or a sling or, you know, sort of a, a very wide range of drinks that are very similar uh, it was, you know, the recipe was spirit of some kind, hot water or a hot liquid of some kind, and then a sweetener. And, you know, it was basically like whatever they had on hand, like, you know, in the, in the days when, uh, you know, white table sugar can be found, you know, for free in a diner, it might not seem like much, but, um, you know, molasses or honey would be sort of a, I think, a stopgap if you didn't have access to that kind of sugar back in the 18th century. It's a it's an incredible point, and it's one that we're reminded of a lot here too. When we think about all those things we take for granted, ice, you know, other components like that, where we're just like, yeah, you know, like what's the big deal? Or totally. fresh herbs, or yeah, totally, or, you know, yeah, fruits and nuts. Okay, not not maybe not as garnishes, but you know, dried fruits, nuts, some that take infusions of those, like luxuries yep. at the time that these drinks were invented or just new ways of thinking about it not to you know not to get too far off the the drink at hand but the first person to put vermouth in a cocktail uh you know i wish we remembered their name because they were a genius <laughs> absolutely especially if you're talking about a dry vermouth mixed with gin that's uh, that tends to be my lane um me too <laughs> very much but so you said, you know, dating back a couple hundred years there what do we know what what are these writings about when we're seeing this this term first mentioned you know the term the term tends to refer to a small very potent hot drink of some kind it was generally hot water um, really not often anything much more advanced than that initially um, it was a sweetener of some kind so if you were you know well off you were probably you're probably getting cane sugar and if you were not you were maybe using you know molasses or maybe honey mm-hmm. um, and then the spirit I think is really where this old recipe when it's just these three things, you know, very similar to an old fashioned, um, that spirit is a a real key choice. And so probably, again, if you were well off, you were probably using cognac. Um, There was something of a a scotch boom in the late 1800s due to uh, Americans discovering how good um, pot still whiskey was in toddies. And so, you know, really the choice of spirit is going to do a lot in these early versions of the drink to basically carry the predominant flavor. And in some ways it's, it's, this, this is a delicious drink. You know, it's not necessarily what somebody would look at. You know, if, if I, you know, the, the apocryphal grandmother making you, uh, you know, a lemon and brandy when you have a cold, um, you know, may not recognize this recipe as a toddy, but it is a good drink nevertheless. And, and, you know, some people would say it's sort of the real toddy. 
It's it's so funny that you bring that example up because we have a we have an article here on Vinepair that was published years ago. I believe it's a I believe it's your drunk aunt was right that the, the the hot toddy is the cure to the common cold. This one continues to see visitors all the time. Um, so you know whether it's your aunt or your grandmother, but it's a great point there. You know there is that modern day connotation of. Maybe, yeah, looking to get over, not 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 like a, a flu or something, but, you know, a slight cold. Maybe the hot toddy can help you out there. Do you do you subscribe to that? Oh, I certainly do. Um, I like I like hot drinks in, in all forms. And I I've definitely had my share of, uh, of you know, honey, ginger, lemon and, and Isla malt um, on, a, on a cold night. So, yeah, I mean, I would I would say the drink things change, you know, like nobody, nobody's going to hold to a 1750 definition of a drink. <laughs> right. When, you know, it's obviously that we think about it differently nowadays. And a couple of other points that you brought up there, maybe we should just touch upon before we move on. First of all, you know, hot water being an ingredient in this, well, you know, clean water 1700s we're talking about is probably a bit of a luxury too or maybe that's the fact maybe that's the reason why we're heating it up right to uh i'm sure folks have discovered by that point that if you heat up the water chances are you're you're killing any bacteria that might be in there yeah i've been wondering about that a lot as you know as i've been sort of doing some some research for in preparation for this because you're right there was a time you know and and it was in in this time period we're describing the you know 1700s where water was considered poisonous because sewage was so bad because it literally was poisonous and they didn't realize you could boil it. And, you know, the story of tea and coffee is discovering basically that if you boil water, it's potable. And so I wonder if there is some kind of, you know, is there any kind of lineage in this discovery of, of boiling water? Is that, is that anything to do with the toddy's origins? I have read as much David Wondrich as I can, and I haven't seen that he's cracked that code yet. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, some of these things are just lost to history, but it's intriguing to consider. Yeah. And then, I mean, you add upon that the fact that we're also including a distilled spirit, which we know as well at that time would have been commonly prescribed, even much later than that, but commonly prescribed for for ailments and whatnot. So even if the science doesn't back up that this is going to cure your cold, we can see that these probably connections run very deep. I think of like this sort of primordial, like ancestral drink from which everything came, because there really are these, you know, across cultures, there are these similarities of like, um, you know, using, using, um, you know, local botanicals to make medicine or using, you know, spirits to cure ailments. I mean, there's really like these, these very, very strong, um, you know, cultural histories of, you know, across cultures of using alcohol in these ways. This, this folk medicine may be smarter than we realize. Yeah. I think it's fascinating to think about a period where we know something that works even if we don't understand exactly why, and especially, you know, those kind of maybe bitter botanicals and things helping set in the stomach and things like that. Mm-hmm. The other thing, though, that I thought about here, too, before we move on, you said this is this kind of a sibling of the sling or, I, you know, maybe maybe some folks were using the terms interchangeably. Uh, can you tell us about the differences there? And And when we're speaking about slings, is that like the you know, like the Singapore sling that we're seeing out there that's become so famous or so commonly associated with that term. Sure. So the, the you know, toddies and slings both were water and it was either hot or cold, spirit and a sweetener of some kind. And so really, you know, in, in the, the research that, and in here really David Wondrich is the, you know, the, he's done all the work here. Um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of differentiation between the two categories. You could have hot toddies and you could have cold toddies. You could have hot slings and you can have cold slings. And they were really interchangeable. Um, and, and maybe that speaks to 
the need to not be dogmatic about this drink at all is that it even then it was a little murky. And so maybe it's okay to take liberties with it, you know, as, as it evolves. And I mean, I've certainly not come across this myself, but, um, any word or have you come across anything to do with what, why are we calling it like a toddy? Cause obviously it can be hot or cold. So the toddy surely means something. Is it like a Todd? Of, is that, is that a measurement of kind of like a dram or something or a, any word on that? Well, thank you for stumping me on that. One. <laughs> I don't know. I wonder. So, you know, you hear a lot about the toddy stick. Um, the toddy stick was sort of before there was the bar spoon, there was the toddy stick and they were using it to crush the sugar and the toddies and the slings. So, is it possible toddy stick was something before it was used to make toddies? Like it was a farming implement that they brought, brought into the kitchen, this toddy stick and kind of the name transferred to the drink. I'm totally making this up, but I, you know, it's interesting to speculate. It's, it's, it, no, yeah, definitely. And that theory definitely would seem to have some foundation there too. It's funny that you mentioned as well, all the work that Wondrich has done. I mean, it comes up pretty much every episode that we cover. Yeah. Is, is anyone fact-checking this guy, by the way? You know, not to throw any shade. Oh, I'm, just like, I'm pretty sure he you know, makes it all up, but he writes yeah, it so well. Wondrich is, <laughs> <laughs> this guy has just made a career of <laughs> historical discoveries and everyone says, well, you know, David Wondrich says it, so, you know, it's, it's got to be true. <laughs> uh, you know, I, um, well, it, it, he, does seem to, he does seem to be uh, backed up by people like Ted High and Gary Regan, so I think he, he probably knows what he's talking about. No, and, and, and I do say that with, with tongue-in-cheek there. I'm definitely not questioning Dave Wondrich's work there, but um, no, he's a great resource. It would be kind of funny, though, to put David Wondrich's you know, body of work into like chat GPT and then like print off a totally fictional cocktail book, though. <laughs> kind Honestly, of a- I mean, <laughs> it would probably read very well. That, that, that tool, uh, for anyone listening who's not familiar with it, though, uh, A, where have you been? B, also, this is what, so it's a, it's a chat machine that's have very incredibly powerful AI. You can ask this in questions, but not only that. So it's kind of like you're on Southwest Airlines. There's a problem with your ticket and you can't get a hold of anyone on the phone. So this is like the chat thing that yeah. you get on the side, but it's taken to a million levels above, right? Mm-hmm, exactly, yeah. I should bring this back on track, though, back to the, <laughs> back to the toddy. So cold toddies, though. Yeah, delightful. Do we see any other variation there or any kind of expansion upon this idea or this style of drinks as well? Well, gosh, because I'm very reductionist at heart, I would argue that like an, I, um, uh, a, a Tom Collins maybe is a cold toddy, right? I mean, you've got, you've got if you want to sort of use the tea and lemon uh, definition, then why not? Right? Yeah, definitely. No, I think I think that's a great great point there. Um, we do a uh, we do a cold toddy at the distillery with apricot tea, um, and then just like a a little bit of uh, star anise and cranberry. It definitely does seem like the one out of the two, you know, hot versus cold, that would be um, more in need of the, the, the water component to be flavored versus the hot one, right? Sure. And once, well, exactly. And then once, you know, once you, once you start going down that path, you, you very quickly come into the, I guess the, like you start to need to disambiguate because you're now making punch essentially. And, and, you know, if you've read again, Wondrous's punch book, it's, you know, it's, there's a really, you know, once you start getting citrus, once you start getting teas, spices, um, these are all hallmark, hallmarks of the next evolution of of mixed drinks. Fantastic. And so what are you looking for in this kind of uh, ideal of a, a hot toddy? If someone were to say to you, you know, someone's never had this drink, someone's never thought of it before, 
someone's never heard of it before, what are you thinking about? What would you serve them and, and, and say like, this is the classic hot toddy and how would you want that profile to land? Mm-hmm. Totally. It depends entirely on the context, I would say, because there are a lot of choices. You know, you can go a lot of ways with it. I would argue it's really kind of a template rather than a specific cocktail these days. But, you know, if, if it's your, you know, if it's a, a, a cold day, you know, somebody who's like, who'd like a hot drink and, you know, if they've got a slight cold so much the better, or maybe not, um, then I would make them something that we call here at the distillery, the neoclassical. And that is really like your, your new school toddy that your grandmother might make you, um, lemon spiced orange syrup. And then we use Keeper's Heart Irish and American in it, which is our, the whiskey we make here. It's our, our first flagship whiskey, which is a blend of, um, pot still whiskey and grain whiskey from Ireland and then Indiana rye whiskey. And so I think that that blend of those three whiskeys, especially the pot still whiskey comes in really nicely uh, in a drink like this. And just uh, sorry to jump in yeah. here, but real forward thinking product there and wonder, wonderful whiskey that too. And also, okay, so the, the, the grain from Ireland might not be unique, but we're talking about, you know, pot still, single pot still Irish whiskey. We've, we've covered it on this show before. Unique to Ireland, Ireland's signature whiskey, I would argue. Mm-hmm. And then... Yeah. North American rye, American rye whiskey. Again, not protected as a as a United States product, but definitely, you know, and, and Canada. Canada would have an issue if we were saying this is only a US thing. But you know what I mean? A, a, a distinctly American whiskey and marrying those two together, I, I think it's wonderful. Uh, yeah, it's one of the, I would say it's the, you know, the it's one of the most interesting products I've ever tasted. I would say it's the most complex single bottle on your shelf right now. Um, yeah, I think it just makes fantastic drinks and pot still whiskey in particular responds very well to the hot toddy treatment. And if you can, you know, we're chatting about this and I, I think honestly for, for many of our listeners who haven't come across it before too, that this idea of, of blending those transatlantic components will, will also be a new one. So can you tell us, give us a brief idea of actually what that ingredient kind of tastes like as well because i'm imagining you know when i think of single pot still i think of a kind of creaminess from the unmalted grains and and a kind of oily in a good way mouthfeel then i think of rye and i think of this spice and this bite so i am i can see how these two come together but is that kind of is that kind of where we're going with that yeah i mean you have you have like you know these strong cooked fruit and spice notes that you you do associate with pot still whiskey plus i think the the oiliness and creaminess that you mentioned is absolutely there that that mouthfeel that textural appeal um I would argue the grain whiskey is really slept on uh you know in in the general world of whiskey. I love grain whiskeys um I've had some fascinating grain whiskeys in my day, and what we found what brian uh nation our our master distiller found when making the blend was that you really needed the grain whiskey to kind of bind the other two together. So even though it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily like the lead guitarist in the band, but it's a pretty good bassist, I would say. Yeah, and I tell you what as well, you you remove that bassist from the band and, and even if you know nothing about music, you know that something's missing there. And I'm with you on that one too about grain. I think especially when those summer months come around and I'm thinking of having something late afternoon, but before the evening and I want to drink a whiskey... Mm-hmm. I love a single grain for that. Yeah, agreed. And so we're, we're you know, we're deep, we're already, we're already dipped a foot at least in the spirit category here. So we might as well continue to, if I can play devil's advocate for a second, just when it comes to thinking about this drink classically and thinking about, all right, we're going to add a sweetening component. Um, do you think 
bourbon is is one that maybe if someone's having this for the first time that might make it the most approachable form of the drink just because it has that inherent built-in sweetness and roundness. What do you think about that? Um, you know, it would certainly have that quality to it. I would almost argue that a, a you know the the heavy barrel char component of the bourbon might be almost potentially more than an, you know a, certainly a neophyte whiskey drinker would want, especially when sort of amplified by the heat. Um, so bourbon could be great. Um, I, I would almost say like and and I am I am biased here, but I th- I do think you know pot still Irish whiskey does make one of the best probably the best hot toddy I've ever had, or, you know, I think keeper's heart. If you've got this, you know, these blends of flavors, I think it does everything well without being too much of anything. Yeah, I know. Cause as well, uh, you know, as bartenders, folks might be uh, tempted to take a drink to the next level by splitting the spirit base and incorporating a number of different whiskeys into that. Mm-hmm. Hey, you guys are doing that already for them. We do it for you. Yeah. That's, that's why I say that it makes the best, you know, the best single, most complex single bottle on your shelf right now, because it just has all that flavor of three different distillates, three different, you know, maturation styles in one. Mm-hmm. And this is certainly not the case for folks that are dialed into the whiskey world and and enjoy it and drink a lot of it. But I definitely do think sometimes there's a connotation or there's an idea maybe about folks that don't know whiskey that think that blended isn't as good as maybe like a single style. But that's completely not the case. Like blended is thought through its balance. You know, this is, uh, yeah, by no means should we, should we be looking at any above the other, right? Well, right. Horses for courses. Right. Our, you know, our master distiller, Brian Nation, was the master distiller um, for, you know, Jameson, Redbreast, and Middleton. Uh, he was at that at Irish Distillers for 23 years, um, you know, involved in making those brands. Um, and so, you know, he was also the master blender at the same time that he was a master distiller, which is there's not a lot of people, not a lot of master distillers who do both. And he'll tell you that that blending is very difficult. It's not an easy thing to do to make a consistent and delicious blend. Um, you know, I, I get the impression there's a, a, a lot of art to blending as well. So I, I think it is really a legitimate art form that, you know, I think we're rediscovering the value of. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we might have brought this up before in the show too, but let's make no mistake about it. Like a single malt whiskey is also a blend of, of hundreds, if not thousands of barrels too, right? That is a blended whiskey. It just, the components are all the same base spirit, but it's you know, a, that is a blended whiskey. It's a similar thing when people object to water or ice in whiskey, um, you know, kind of ignoring the fact that water is very likely to already have been added to the whiskey at some point in the process. <laughs> so yeah. really what's another splash if you like it. And on that single malt front, some people will immediately go to Scotch and Scotland when we talk about that category. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm thinking more about someone who's fairly new to whiskey or fairly new to this drink or hasn't had it before. Those malty notes and earthiness, a savoriness to it. Off the bat, maybe hard to come to terms with at first sip if you're not an experienced whiskey drinker. Does that make it a difficult component for the hot toddy or is actually the hot toddy a vehicle that makes this, you know, makes this whiskey a lot more approachable for folks that aren't ready to drink it neat? I think it's a it's a great vehicle for you know for people who are dipping their toes into whiskey as well as for people who like you know just like the flavor of whiskey. Um, you know, water does a good job of making strong flavors more palatable. Um, it's true, but it's also it also does a good job of bringing out flavor that you wouldn't be able to detect otherwise. So you know, it can take. Uh, 
I, I really like a lot of water in whiskey because it takes something that is, you know, you think of as very, very punchy and potent, and it almost turns it into more of like an iced tea with enough water um, without losing any of its, uh, its effect. Fantastic. And then, you know, also you mentioned early on here that cognac or, you know, if we want to take that broader brandy would have been common, especially during a certain time if you had a decent amount of money. We can look, maybe we can group all aged spirits together there rather than going to each one or actually before we do rum, how do you feel about that? A a kind of aged rum. What are you looking for? What kind of style of aged rum would you go for a, a hot toddy? Um, God, anything without too much sugar already added and maybe just a little bit of the hogo, but not too much. Um, you know, I, I would say middle of the road. Um, you, you kind of want it to have a foot in every, every world. Um, but a nice well-aged rum with a little bit of that brown sugar flavor, if that's what you got on hand, we'll make a delicious one too. There's no need to, no need to go too cerebral with the rum. Yeah, definitely. And and I imagine too, especially if you start incorporating other ingredients into that, you know, w- which we'll get into, but, you know, maybe some baking spices or things, a star anise, you know, those licorice notes of the, of the rum would just, it just lends itself. It's just a perfect marriage. Yes. I mean, it makes rum, rum is a phenomenal, you know, just fascinating spirit that makes fantastic hot drinks. Wonderful. All right. What about clear spirits now? Because... I've definitely seen on menus, I've spoken with bartenders before as well about, you know, looking at this idea of a hot toddy and taking each of these components as we're doing today and going wild with them, whether it's mezcal with some of that smokiness evoking maybe a a peated scotch or I don't know, maybe a gin. I'm not sure. But tell us how you feel about using unaged spirits in this drink. I don't think you can go too wrong. The only wrong answer might be vodka, but there might be a good vodka hot toddy out there too. I'm I'm not sure I, I'm aware of one. <laughs> um, you know, I think a gin, <laughs> yeah. I think a gin hot toddy would be delicious, especially with the right gin. But I don't know that I can imagine a gin that I could think of that I would say you could not make a good hot drink with this. You know, like maybe if you're using a Jennifer of some kind, you might you might go you know a little bit more robust. And, you know, like uh, fuller, richer flavors, if you're using a London dry, then you may want to steer, you know, cleaner and lighter. Uh, That would be a rough, you know, a rough guide. But um, just because it doesn't have oak in it doesn't necessarily mean it won't. I'm sure it'll taste great if you, uh, well, you can mix anything, right? You can, Mm -hmm. you can make anything work. Um, You just have to find like the other points on the circle. And I, yeah, right. And I think that, I think like a lot of times with cocktails, it comes down to which is the one component that I am hell bent on using in this drink and how can I make the other ingredients adapt to it? Totally. Yeah, exactly. And we'll get into that in just a second, but you, you bring up Jennifer. I've got a question for you here. It's just something I've been thinking about um, over the years, you know, typically right aged. So some people say, oh, Jennifer, yeah, you know, it's the, you know, it's the original. And you have folks out there like Jared Brown at Sip Smith saying that even though people think this predated gin, it doesn't. Anyway, regardless of what came first, you know, the elevator explanation, what is Jennifer? It's, it's barrel-aged gin. Is it, is a better way to describe it whiskey with juniper? How do you feel about that? That is a good way of describing it. Um, I would only say that I, I, you know, I've, I don't know, and I, I'm certainly open to being mistaken on this, that I don't know that barrel aging is a requirement to be called a Jennifer. 
I definitely don't think it is, but I feel like we mainly come across those. But again, I might be wrong with that. Or certainly we don't see the same aging periods. But what I do get when I've had Jennifer as well is like a, a, a much maltier base than I get yes. from a from a gin, which is, you know, you're you're looking, I guess, for that base to be pretty neutral. Yeah, I, I think it's malt wine is the base for Jennifer, if I'm not mistaken. And that flavor is unmistakable um, in that, mm-hmm. you know, in that category. I, there's another one out there, I guess, you know, if you're looking for something in gin that's like that and here in the U.S., um, St. George Spirits, I think, has a dry rye or something. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a rye-based gin, and that's that's really wonderful. That is like drinking rye whiskey that hasn't been aged and has juniper. That's a good one. Anyway. I mean, yeah, if you're going to make if you're gonna make gin hot toddies, I would say go straight to the St. George section of the shelves and grab all their gins because those are all going to make really interesting and different drinks for sure. Good folks out there. And I think they yeah. recently celebrated uh, 40 years. So happy birthday to those guys. Um, all right. So we, we, we are going to say, though, for the purposes of this show that we have we've chosen uh, a whiskey of our choice as the base spirit for this, which I think it would be a crime to do anything otherwise. Not a crime, a crime for this show, but not in general, as we've discussed. We're choosing whiskey. And now we're going to base the other components of this drink upon it. I'd like us to do a similar kind of thing in saying... What would be classical? What would be your approach? But also, what are the other possibilities? Sure. Um, let's start with a sweetening agent for this. Where are you going with that? Again, it, it'll really depend on the context. So, um, with the, you know, I think the the example of you know just a cold day and your friend wants a hot drink, um, the neoclassical is kind of what I recommend. So you've got black tea, you've got or- spice orange, you've got lemon. If let, let's say there's a, it's a different context, right? You're, you're, you've been talking to your friend about the history of the drink, or, or maybe your friend has been listening to a really well-produced hot toddy podcast somewhere online and they were curious, <laughs> uh, you know, in that case, maybe you'd want to give them something a little more historically relevant, um, or, or historically kind of faithful maybe. Uh, and so in that case, you might make them something that's very similar to the original hot toddy, hot water, whiskey, and sugar, um, that that would be depend again. That's where that's where the whiskey is really going to make a difference. You could even do something. I like I like that recipe, but I like adding just a little bit of lemon peel for aromatics in that drink, and so that would be called a whiskey skin then rather than a hot toddy. Um, but so you know, I, I would say if you want if you want historical sort of historical accuracy, a whiskey skin, which would just be you know about two ounces of whiskey, you know maybe six ounces of hot water maybe a, a half ounce of, you know, Pilancio or whatever kind of rough unrefined sugar you can get and then top to the hot water. That's, that's a pretty close facsimile of the original hot toddies, you know, the 1750 hot toddy differences would be sourcing the kind of spirit that they would have back then. So if, you know, historical reproduction is your, your concern, then that might be a bit of a challenge, but you know, in spirit, certainly very close. And then that leads us very nicely into the final component of the drink in, in a way, or the way I think about it, which is the hot component. Water could be something else. First of all, on the water front, if I'm worried, I make you said a, a ratio there of two ounces spirit is you know six ounces hot water. If a guest is worried that I don't want my whiskey diluted down mm-hmm. too much, if I think about this through the lens of like a highball or a shaken cocktail or something like that. Generally speaking, there's, there's no difference there, right? There's nothing for us to worry about. 
Sorry, there's no difference where. In terms of the dilution, sorry, just, you know, like if you're you're having, adding six ounces of water to two ounces of, of whiskey, like there's no danger of me being like, oh, you know, this is a tasty drink, but I really wish I could get a little bit more of the whiskey in this one. Like that, that's a pretty balanced ratio that you're talking about there. I would, yeah, I would agree with that. And I would say it's even, it'll, it's going to taste even more, it's going to taste stronger than a highball. So if you made, that's a, you know, a two ounce to six ounces, obviously a one to three ratio. If you made a one to three highball, um, you know, it's going to taste, you're going to taste a little bit of whiskey, but it's not going to be super intense. Um, it's going to be more like that sort of delicious iced tea that I said. Um, when you're doing that with hot water, because it's hot, all of the alcohol, specifically the ethanol burn, but also just sort of the full flavor of the whiskey generally is going to be really amplified. And so what I find, you know, over the years of drinking hot toddies is that I, and, and this might seem, you know, crazy to some, but I really do prefer a much lighter hot toddy. Um, I prefer even, you know, if it were, if I were making one for myself, it would be even less, even less whiskey, just because I think when you have a, a service that accentuates the harsh alcohol burn and some of the like harsher elements of whiskey, um, you can still taste it very well, bringing down the levels some. Yeah. You know, it sometimes might seem counterintuitive, but then you think about the whole, it gets to summer, you're going for the frozen drinks and, and even though the spec is maybe the same as you're, you know, you're doing for a standard cocktail, as soon as you get into frozen, suddenly you're like, this needs more sugar. This needs more acid. This needs more everything. Right. Because when you get colder, it's harder to taste things. Yep. Yep. People, people think they want a strong drink, but it, it kind of feels like, you know, your, your general, your average drinker is going to respond best to the same, you know, a very predictable ABV range of like, call it maybe 12 to 20%. You know what I mean? And, and I would say on the lower side of that, generally, um, there's just, it's, people like to taste it, but they don't, they don't necessarily like to taste it front and center um, without any kind of, you know, anything in the way. And, you know, you, you know, during your own years, many years of uh, working as a bartender in multiple countries around the world, I'm sure this is maybe something that unites all guests. You're going to get that one that asks you, I'd like this cocktail, but make it strong. Do you have any advice for bartenders out there? Yeah, maybe younger bartenders. Yeah, make it strong, man. Make it strong. Give it to them. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, you know, it'll be like, it'll be like seven cents cost. As long as they're not wasted, you know? Uh, Yeah. It'll be like seven cents cost and it'll make them happy and they won't have this memory of like, even if they're being totally unreasonable, like uh, my policy has always been like, if somebody asks for, you know, a splash more wine because it wasn't heavy enough, I'll, I'll always pour it. Um, mm-hmm. As long as it's not a safety issue, of course. Yeah, very good point there, of course. You know, that's the first thing we want to be thinking about is, you know, we don't want anyone to be overserved. But so what, what is your thing? Your, your, so your thinking is, yeah, we can do that. And you navigate that by going, what, like an extra quarter of an ounce or something? You know, I'm, I'm talking across the board, not just the hot toddy here. Yeah, totally. Um, well, so our cocktail pours are, are like our cocktail pours are based on a 50 mil pour. So if a guest asked me for an extra strong, that's, that's like an ounce and two thirds. So if, if a, a guest asked me for a strong highball, say, I would probably mm-hmm. give him a 60 mil instead of a 50 mil. And that would, yeah. that would seem to me to be a good deal. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you're going that extra mile and, you know, yeah, it's, yeah, maybe not the nicest thing to hear, but why not? Why not, please, folks? It, yeah, it really I'm, is. I mean, it's not adding much time onto your time onto the preparation of the drink and, and it sounds like from your front, not too much extra cost there too. 
That question almost goes from a culinary question to a hospitality question, in my view. You know, it goes from like, um, you know, how is it going to take and the taste and how are we making it to like, what does this person actually want? And sometimes they just, they, they just want to like feel like they have a need that somebody is happy to meet. And even if that need requires that person to go a little out of the way, they're going to do it. And it's a, such a simple thing to get right, but it will make them, you know, it'll, it'll symbolically, it'll make their experience much better. So it's, it's always worth it to, you know, try to meet, try to give them what they want. Try to meet them there. Yeah, yeah. Great advice. The whole component here too, though, I don't know whether I've just had this wrong over the years or whatnot, but I've always just assumed that, I, again, I've not really actually probably drank that many hot toddies, but I always assumed that just tea was tea was kind of part of it. It had to be. Would you say that that's a very common conception or misconception? It absolutely is. Um, you know, I would say in the past hundred years, if you were to randomly, I, I'm trying to imagine scenarios in which this would happen, randomly accost strangers on the street and ask them to make you a hot toddy, um, I would say, you know, probably probably eight times out of 10, it would have tea in it. Um, now, it, it is the case that historical records do not show any tea. And in fact, that would have been ruinously expensive, probably for most house, households. Um, right. But today it means tea. So, mm -hmm. you know, you have to, you kind of have to respect that. It's it's the same as like going to a bar and correcting somebody every time they order a martini of some kind, you know, to not yeah. mean gin and vermouth. It's very similar. Like just the less of it, the better. Mm -hmm. Speaking about accosting people on the street and asking them to make hot toddies, there's a Billy Eichner episode I'd like to see, but I'm not sure that, you know, I'm not sure that reference will land with everyone, but um, we, we're in the, we're certainly in the neighborhood where that man seems to operate. Um, <laughs> any other things, general ingredients here? We're Again, we're sticking to the whiskey base. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. We're going classical sweetening, sugar, hot water. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at my, my spice rack now and I'm like, I feel like I can add a couple of extra ingredients in here. Like you said, maybe it's, uh, let's start with, actually, before we go into the spice rack, let's start with lemon. Right. Are you going peel as if you're creating a nice twist for, for an expression, or are you cutting across the lemon and, and either going for a wedge or a wheel? If I'm adding that to my water as I bring it up to a temperature, how do I make sure that that's not too bitter? What, what, what part of the lemon should I be using there? Sure, to lemon or not to lemon. Um, there is a, so there <laughs> is a, so I guess to back up a little bit, the question of lemons generally, I think is, is the biggest question is, do you use the juice, right? Do you add acid to this drink? Do you consider it to be a drink with acid? Or do you think that's maybe more of a punch and you leave it out? And so that's, that's one, that's a fork in your road as you're making your hot toddy is, which is, you know, which adventure do you choose? Um, as far as lemon goes, you're going to read a lot that you need to cut the whites off of lemon peel when you use it in drink applications because the whites are bitter. Now, I'm not sure how many times you've cut the white off of a lemon peel and then bitten it, but I've done it a couple times and I've never gotten a bitter component off of it. Um, huh. I would argue that, that that conventional wisdom is maybe not correct. And so... What I, what I kind of suspect is the actual aromatic oils that are in, trapped in the lemon, the, the yellow of the lemon, are the thing that are also bitter, uh, which would make a kind of sense um, that, you know, this, this intense lemon extract is, is bitter, isn't, wouldn't necessarily be, or astringent anyways, wouldn't necessarily be surprising. So 
you know, you certainly could busy yourself by slicing the rind off. It'll look a little better if you're serving it professionally. You certainly want to consider that if you're making it for yourself. Do I think the leaving the rind on, if you if you make, say, a whiskey skin with a lemon twist, is going to give you a noticeably more bitter flavor? I'm not sure I do. I I, I kind of swim against the current on that one. Now, if you're going to leave, I like it. You know, if you're going to do a lemon twist or you're going to do a lemon wheel or a lemon wedge, that question will be answered by whether or not you want acid or the possibility of acid in the drink. And then if the answer is yes, then how much, right? So if you want a lot, then you're going to you maybe use a wedge and either squeeze it in or put it on the side so they can squeeze it in. If you don't want a lot, but you maybe just want, you know, just the barest amount of acid in this drink, then a wheel dropped in would give you both acid and bitterness. And when we use bitterness in the term, you know, in the context of lemon oil bitterness, um, we almost it, it. It's interesting that people talk about bitterness from rind as a bad thing when reaching for bitters in the drink that they're making. You know what I mean? Um, I, I'm not convinced yeah. that the bitter lemon is a bad thing either. So there's plenty of times when you could just drop in a lemon wheel and be done with it. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a really great point too. And I think maybe some of my worry there when it comes to that bitterness front is uh, I'm reminded of Christmas recently when I was, uh, you know, had my 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 bird resting and deglaze my pan. I get it all into a pot, starting to reduce my stock, and I'm like, yeah, lemon will really liven this up. Do not reduce that for mm. half an hour with you know that's going too far. Yep. Yeah, and I could see you know on any on the kind of time scale that a hot toddy is alive. I could definitely, I, I don't, I'm not super concerned with when you're talking about, you know, long extractions using sustained heat, absolutely tread carefully. <laughs> that's when it, that's when it becomes a problem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was my error there. Uh, remember that one for next year or this year. I'm looking back over to that spice rack now though. I'm looking at maybe star anise. Um, the answer is yes. Cinnamon. <laughs> the answer Anything. is always yes. Just throw Anything it all in. Anything and all of the above. Grab a T-ball, throw it all in. If you're interested, make notes and see what works. And then tomorrow when you do it again, or later on tonight or tomorrow morning or whatever it is, yeah. um, see what the next, you know, take notes about the next one and see how they change. I, I, I don't believe in sacred cows. I don't believe in any, you know, I don't really believe in like you can do things wrong. I, I think you maybe just haven't found the context to do them right when you think you've made a mistake. Um, I, I'm not going to defend that statement in court, but I will say that I think you can make surprising things work with the right, uh, creativity. And I think that, yeah, I think that's a great attitude to have before we move on one, one final question here about that cinnamon, how mm. much experience do you have with real cinnamon and also what folks think is cinnamon and they're buying, but is actually probably, uh, casia bark. No, what is that? It's something right, else. Yeah, the great cinnamon debate. I, you know, I don't have strong feelings on cinnamon. I've, I've heard mm -hmm. that, you know, what we, what we buy, uh, and I don't, I don't know how that applies to restaurant supply, but I imagine it's the same. You know, those cute little kind of straws. Yep. Yep. No, I, I get it. Yeah. I mean, and the, the idea that this is somehow an inferior cinnamon, <laughs> it's probably, it probably is, but I mean, you know, isn't this in a way just somebody else's marketing telling you to feel bad about your cinnamon? Yep. And I tell you what, we like things neatly packaged. You know what I mean? Like same with olive oil. Like I don't drink, I don't, I don't eat the best olive oil in the world, but I feel just fine about it. And I really, I, I'm, you know, it's a similar thing. Like I, is there better olive oil out there? Is there better cinnamon out there? Yeah. You can, yeah. You'll probably be fine if you use what you got in the cabinet though. 
I tell you, I was, you know, and, and I only bring this up because it was brought to my attention when I was, I was out in the Seychelles last year and, and we recorded an episode out there, The Dark and Stormy, if you haven't listened to that one yet, listeners. Best national um, flag in the world. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> it's so good. Um, but we were actually gifted some, some, you know, fresh cinnamon bark and yes, the flavor was different. I'll say this though, this thing was this thing was tough to work with. Whereas, you know, the the cinnamon that we're all accustomed to, okay, the flavor was slightly different, maybe not as intense, maybe didn't hit the high notes, but it's it's nice, it's neat, it's good. I don't know. I just figured we'd bring that up because it's not often that we're going into cinnamon on this show. I think it's important to bring these questions up. Um, yeah, I mean, the ingredients. Just to be totally clear, the ingredients are crucial. Um, you know, like to if if. If you want cinnamon in your drink, then you're going to have to figure out a way to get a good cinnamon in there. Um, but the, uh, the flavor that most people associate with cinnamon is you know, maybe a fake cinnamon. And so I, how, much, how much time am I – put it this way. Of all the ingredients that I spend a lot of time thinking about, cinnamon is not one of them. And it is for other people. <laughs> maybe the chai makers of the world are very uh, concerned about their cinnamon supply. But I, I, you know, I, the – the Irish are apparently, I found this out when we, when I started working among many Irish people, uh, sort of notorious for disliking cinnamon. And so I don't reach for it very much. We don't really have it on hand too often here. Um, so I guess as far as the great cinnamon debate goes, happily, it's a, a question I've been able to sidestep. <laughs> Until today. Yeah, right. And then you held my feet to the fire. <laughs> All right, then we're going to we're going to briefly jump into the your preparation and build of this drink. So I'm going to ask you to commit to one recipe for that. Um, yes. But before we do. Thinking about this, say I open up, we got a nice little bar here in the Vine Pair office. Say I open this one up to the public and we became known for Tim's Hot Toddies, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're doing great business with this. Is there are there any components of this that for a volume? you would pre-batch ahead of time or bring together? I know it kind of depends on the recipe that you're going to give us, but just thinking about this, we also touched upon this recently in the Irish coffee episode in terms of like how you can have many components ready for service. And again, maybe there's more ingredients involved in that than this drink, but any tips you might have there? I'm not sure if this is something you've ever thought about having to batch hot toddies, but um, I was curious about that one. We we currently have a, a you know, Hot toddies in winter are relevant to my interests, you could say. So here at the distillery, <laughs> we have our, our second year in a row, we have a full hot toddy menu that after Thanksgiving, we start rolling out one drink, one hot drink a week through till the new year. And then we put everything on a menu after the, you know, in the new year and run it for about three months to basically nice. get through this, the next three months to, that await us. So, um, you know, we do high volume hot drinks out of the bar. And I haven't found that batching is necessarily um, helpful for hot toddies. And it, it might just be because they're, they're, I don't know, they seem to be, they seem to be simpler drinks to me. Like it's, it's generally, it's all, you know, different things mixed with hot water. And the hot water step is much simpler operationally than shaking or stirring. You know, you just dump and mix. So mm-hmm. um, I haven't, I haven't found that when the bar slows down. I haven't found the hot toddies necessarily to be the choke point, or I haven't found that like combining, you know, the, the sugar and the whiskey is sometimes all the, all that's in their side from hot water. I haven't necessarily found that batching those two would, would move the needle. 
Again, yeah, that that makes sense. I guess it really does come down to say you're, you know, looking to some of those spices we were just speaking about then or, uh, you know, maybe mixing the sugar already with the water. In that case, there's, you know, there's certainly things you could do. And I guess maybe you're batching in a different way. If you're, if you're going to use spices and if you'd like that spice extraction to be to order, then you would, you know, you could pretty easily put it in a little paper tea sachet, the, this, you know, the compostable tea sachet. So you could do a spice blend to order, um, and have individual sachets that, you know, I, I would, I would argue that's batching. Um, nice. <laughs> right? or yeah, you could, yeah, yeah. I like that. Or you could make, uh, you know, I think in the neoclassical that I described, uh, with the spiced orange syrup and black tea, um, you know, we, we spice the orange syrup, uh, because we want that, that warm, you know, baking spices, um, aroma, but we don't want the sort of unpredictability that sometimes like, you know, spices in a tea bag can bring. And so we, we basically just, you know, make a syrup out of the spices, uh, with lump with orange zest and, you know, fairly straightforward process. And so if you're looking to, you know, get the spices in there on an easy way, that might be another way is just to make a syrup. Got it. Yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. So using that, so having it for your your, your sweetness, but also bringing the flavor that you desire. Uh, and then it's just a case of adding water and your base spirit, or maybe it's not, but you're going to tell us now, because I'm going to ask you mm-hmm. to walk us through that that ideal, that, that mm-hmm. drink here. I'd love you to walk us through start to finish. If we're at a professional bar, talk us through the preparation of this drink, uh, including, if you will, please, ratios, spec, measurements, and um, yeah, your, your, your classic ideal of a, high, of a hot toddy here. All right. Well, so the classic ideal of a hot toddy, if I'm going to choose the classic, like platonic ideal of a hot toddy, I think I have to choose the whiskey skin, not the neoclassical, just because that is, that is really about the whiskey in a much more satisfying way that I think probably the listeners of this podcast would appreciate. So if you're going to make whiskey skin, um, you know, your first step is going to be to identify your glass. And that can be anything concave, but having a handle helps because you don't want to burn your hands. So I would suggest a mug, ideally. Um, there are a lot of fancy options out there, but you don't have to think too hard about it. You can just choose your favorite mug um, because it's your favorite. Your next step is going to be to get some water going. You're going to want to have plenty of hot water on hand. And so I would just say get a pot of water boiling um, or an electric kettle. Probably an electric kettle is the best way. And then when the water's uh, up to heat, when the water's boiled, you want to shock the glass, it's called. And that is simply just pouring hot water into the glass and letting it sit and warm the glass up. And you can't underdo that. I mean, I guess, or sorry, you can't overdo that is what I was trying to say. Um, you can't overdo the heating of the glass. It's, it's, you want to get it as hot as possible. And that takes 20 seconds to 30 seconds or more. And heating the glass is, I would say, the, the real step. When I said a hot toddy has to be hot, to me, um, you know, the, the way to make sure you get it the most hot is to heat the glass as much as possible. The amount of weight and mass represented by that glass dwarfs the drink. And so it's really going to be the, the biggest factor in terms of if you keep the heat or not is how hot that glass is when the drink goes into it. So get the glass hot, put the hot water in it, leave it there for as long as you can while you're busying yourself with the rest. Uh, but there's not much is the good news. Um, I would say... Um, we use, uh, for a whiskey skin, this is again, um, a sort of a historical reproduction of, you know, basically trying to make what the, the first hot toddies conceivably would have tasted like. And so I try to use a less refined sugar 
something with some of the cane flavor still left in it. Um, even Demerara is, uh, is maybe a little too refined. And so we like to use a peel and seal here. Mm-hmm. Um, you can break off a couple, break off a couple pieces off the cone and just smash them in with a toddy stick or a muddler into, uh, you know, into hot water, or you can make a syrup out of it. But either way, you're going to want to get your sugar in some form ready. You're going to want to have um, your whiskey ready. And in this case, I would use Keeper's Heart Irish and bourbon uh, just because it has a little more of a predominant uh, uh, bourbon flavor, a little higher bourbon in the blend. So I want a little more of the charcoal, a little more of the honey and caramel. And then finally, the, the fourth ingredient is a lemon peel. So it's just those, those four things. When your glass is shocked, in goes your sugar, in goes your lemon peel, and in goes your whiskey. Um, if you're using um, you know, rock sugar, you'll want to smash it up a little bit into the whiskey, uh, add the water, smash it some more if it's not melted yet, and you're basically good to go. And what about some rough uh, or, or, or exact measurements for each of those components there. <laughs> Thank you. Right. So we use, um, let's see, we use 15 milliliters of pill and CO syrup at the distillery, which translates to about a half an ounce. Um, we use uh, one and a third ounces of high proof uh, Keeper's Heart, Keeper's Heart 110. It's a, it's a new bottling of the Irish and American that we released a year and a half ago. Um, but the 110 we just released at uh, a higher proof than before. So I really like that. It's great in hot toddy. A little goes a long way. So I would use, you know, about 40 mils of uh, Keeper's Heart 110. And then I would top the mug up with hot water, which is going to wind out to be about, I would say, 10 ounces. And you've worked, uh, interesting there, because I know you've worked both sides of the the Atlantic and and beyond. Uh, And the Pacific, yeah. And the Pacific, yeah, of course. So... You generally find that? Do you prefer to work in milliliters or ounces? I, I find that fascinating. Um, you know, I never. When I I opened a bar called Marvel Bar in Minneapolis in 2011, and when we were planning Marvel, um, immediately it was obvious that milliliters were the only way to fly. Um, you know, it takes really. Oh yeah, I mean, it's we were using ounces. I, I was using ounces before. I was exposed to milliliters in Japan, but um, you know, it was really it wasn't until we were planning Marvel that I thought like the obvious choice here is to just move everything to milliliters. Um, once you, once you start really like batching recipes or, or reducing batches into individual drinks, uh, it, it, it really pays for itself. And that's because generally speaking, you're able to think of one milliliter as one gram when it comes to the, the batching process there. That is really helpful. That, I mean, that there's, there's so many, there's so many obvious reasons to use the metric system, um, generally, but, but the most practical reason is, that allows you to fine tune your recipes in a way that I don't really believe ounces do. You can talk about fat and skinny quarter ounces all you want, but there's still, it's still fundamentally inexact. And so for me, you know, being able to talk in terms of like 12, 15 milliliters, even if it's difficult to hit that exact 12 milliliter mark on a jigger, at least you know what the target is. We've, we, you know, you can demonstrate, you, you can get, you know, great graduated cylinders and measure things down to the milliliter and prove it out that way rather than having to rely on terms like fat and skinny. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if, if you were to take my, like my favorite dry martini recipe, for example, in milliliters or in, in ounces would be something like, uh, what would it be like five sixths of an ounce of vermouth and two and one sixth of an ounce of gin. And that just yeah, sounds it's hard awful. to get that. <laughs> when you say 65, 25, you suddenly are like, Oh, okay. 65, 25. Yeah. 
so much more straightforward. So yeah, I mean that's if if we needed another reason to all switch to metric, that's that's the reason. <laughs> or you could find yourselves like the UK where you're you're in both worlds. So you're driving around in miles and measuring things in grams and milliliters. I don't know. I've just stopped counting anything in the UK. I've stopped measuring, counting. I don't even try anymore. <laughs> Tell you what I don't measure anymore right there is the currency not doing too well right now. Oh. Sorry, it's, my, <laughs> it's my family and friends over there that are <laughs> listening right now. Uh, no, no, it's 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 serious. Uh, we've seen it. We've seen it. It swings both ways, you know. That's the, the special relationship we have between these two countries. <laughs> um, all right, that's brilliant. That's a brilliant, um, you know, walkthrough of the drink itself, preparation, serving vessel, garnish. I guess we're talking about that lemon that's already in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the lemon is your garnish in this case. It provides, I think, a little bit of pleasurable bitterness in this case, as well as obviously the, you know, the lemon zest aroma. And so that that functionally is a garnish. If you're making, you know, let's say you were making a, a hot toddy without, you weren't making a whiskey skin, you were making a classic 1750 hot toddy, you might use nutmeg instead of lemon. Um, with hot drinks, uh, aromatics are enhanced. And so uh, there's always a good, you know, it's always a good time to use a garnish with a hot drink. Is it nutmeg or is it mace? Question for a different podcast. Ooh, yeah. Also, <laughs> yeah, that's that's going to be a can of worms. Yeah, there we go. Sounds fantastic. All right, then. Any final thoughts here before we move on to the uh, second section of the show, the final section of the show? But any final thoughts before that on the hot toddy pip? No, I mean, I would just say that we, well, I said no, but obviously I mean yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, we've, we've been discussing two very classic versions of the drink, but I think that, you know, maybe it doesn't quite do justice to the, you know, the, the um, adaptability of the hot drink format. Um, there's, you know, we've, we've got some really interesting uh, toddies that we were doing with, you know, we're, we're uh, sous vide cooking sushi ginger into Japanese mirin and using that as a sweetener and a, a savory agent as well. Um, we've been doing, you know, it's playing with fruit teas and, and, you know, spiced honeys and, and none of this is, necessarily crazy in the hot toddy genre, but it just, I think, speaks to how much you can riff on this format. Um, it really is about as versatile as they come because it really is just something sweet, something strong, and something hot. Plug and play. The world's your oyster mm-hmm. after that. Mm-hmm. I love that idea, though. You know, you start talking about marin and pickled ginger. I'm, I'm, I'm in. Sign me up. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of ways you can take it. And I do think, I do think Keeper's Heart will always make the best hot toddy you'll ever taste. So much complexity, they taste so good. Nice, nice. All right then, Pip, let's head into the next section of the show where we get to know yourself more as a bartender and a drinker, starting with question one here. Okay. What style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar? Um, You know, these days, it's always Keeper's Heart. Um, We have, we've released... uh, well, quite a few bottlings in the past year and a half that we've been open. I think we're, we've got something like 10 different bottles on the shelf now. Um, so we've got Irish and American and Irish and bourbon. Uh, those are the two blends of Irish and American whiskeys that are our flagships. We've got a 10-year Irish single malt that we're releasing that's finished in Malaga casks. And then we've got a lot of different uh, barrel finishes as well as a lot of interesting uh, new things planned for this year too. Nice. Um, so that is, that is predominantly on my, uh, on my shelf. But I will say, you know, just, you know, before the Keeper's Heart days, anything made in a pot still was usually what I was reaching for. 
And if you're taking this, if you're if you're looking at home and I'm saying, sorry, I'm not allowing you to have something aged, where do you think that would go? Where, where What might take up the most shelf space uh, of unaged spirits at home? Unaged spirits. I mean, if money was no object, it would probably be agave, but it is. So gin. <laughs> Actually, no, that's not even true. I, if I could, I would go as I would go super deep into Japanese honkaku shochu, which I think is a really slept on category of spirit that has some of the most interesting and diverse flavors I've ever tasted. Um, shochu, specifically uh, honkaku shochu, um, just wild stuff. So this is the first one here on the on we've ever had that on the podcast, and I'll admit it's a new one for me. So do you mind just giving us a, a quick uh, brief insight into what that is? Yeah. So Japanese, so Honkaku shochu is um, it's shochu. It's it's you know a distilled spirit made in Japan. Uh, it is distinct but similar to Korean soju, and um, Japanese Honkaku shochu is often made in traditional stills of various types. Um, some of them are in like tree trunks with copper bottoms and copper condensers nice. on top. There, there are these, uh, it's really an interesting, like very diverse, uh, sort of style of distillation. You can distill just about anything into shochu. So, you know, any grain certainly, but then also like barley noodles, or I think, I think I heard about a, uh, sorry, soba noodles. You know, I, there's lots of soba noodle shochu, which is to say fermented and distilled noodle shochu. And I think I heard about pizza shochu, uh, pizza dough shochu once. So very versatile, but the, the key is, and the reason it's distinct from vodka because it's, it's generally not aged is that it's distilled to a very, very low proof. So it's distilled. I don't think it's distilled higher than 50% and it's usually bottled about, you know, right around 25%. And so wow. as a result, you just have all of this flavor coming through, you know, not, not predominantly ethanol and then, you know, oak maturation, but all of this constituent ingredient, uh, providing a ton of flavor. So it's, it's incredibly delicate, incredibly light and subtle. Um, and just, just very, very fascinating. That sounds incredible. I need to get myself, I need to start doing an exploration there. Uh, you've opened a can of worms there for me. (laughs) Um, moving on to question two here, which ingredient or tool is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? Well, I'm going to say a chopstick because um, I spent a long time learning Japanese stirring technique and kind of practicing that and and bringing that to my work. And when we opened O'Shaughnessy Distilling Company, I I kind of wanted to at least not if not start over, at least take nothing for granted. And so we, you know, rather than training bartenders on Japanese technique, we started implementing uh, metal chopsticks as stirring sticks and. You can spin a chopstick around, you know, it may not be like, may not be like a crooked pinky and, you know, this, this technique that you spent 30 years learning, but you can, you can stir a drink in half the time with a chopstick just by whipping around the sides of the glass. So, you know, maybe have a bar spoon in your regular rotation, but then have a a chopstick as a fallback. We, we've basically switched the entire bar over to chopsticks instead of spoons and I'll never look back. Nice. And this may be too much for us to go into detail here and possibly it's one where we say this is going to be another show, but are there any kind of very brief bullet points or talking points you can tell us how Japanese stirring technique and bartending differs from what folks might be familiar with in the US or is that just too much to explore? I mean, it's just, it's very meticulous. Um, 
and very technique oriented. But I, I would say there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of bars in the U.S. now that are are doing the kind of things that, uh, you know, at one point you really had to go to Tokyo or, or at least to Japan to see. So I, I would let, you know, the I would let the bartenders around this country who are doing their own, you know, sort of interpretation of that style. I would let them answer the question. Yeah, go, 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 go visit those spots. Mm-hmm. Um, Angel Share used to be a beloved one here in New York, uh, but I believe friend of friend of friend of Vine Pair, Takuma Watanabe, who's uh, was the former head bartender there. He opened up Martinis, which uh, if anyone's anyone's in New York, I would definitely recommend seeking that place out, saying hi to Takuma, and also he's he's someone that can speak about this too. So just one one little recommendation there. But yeah, it it really is an art form. Um, you see it, you you absorb it, even if you don't know what's going on. I think if you're sat at that bar, you really feel that something slightly different to maybe what you're used to is going on there. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's it's just time slows down. Mm-hmm. Question number three. What's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? <laughs> um, the best piece of advice I've ever worked in this industry is... When you cut someone off, take away their ashtray because they're going to throw it at your head. Oh my God, that sounds like a story. <laughs> it wasn't. It was, but it wasn't my story. My, um, you know, my the my first night behind a bar was with a guy called Johnny Michaels. He's, uh, I think, um, I view him as the the godfather of the Twin Cities uh, cocktail scene. He was he was sort of first with almost everything. And sometimes I have an idea that I think is great, and I'll realize Johnny did it like 15 years ago. Um, but he was, you know, Johnny put in some time in some of the dive bars of the world. And so he always, you know, I, I, I basically started in fine dining. Um, and so it was always good to hear Johnny's stories of like what the, the other side of the bartending trade is like, and, and, you know, maybe, maybe a side that I, I wish I had seen some, sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. I totally get that you want to see it, but you know, also maybe not have lived it or not had to have. Yeah. Definitely get I that. do feel like I should have worked in a dive bar at one point in my life, but alas. Alas, yeah, you just visit it from the other side. But yeah, I, I hear you on that one. Exactly. Question number four. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be? Oh, God, I saw this on the list and I don't know if I have an answer for it. Um, you know, there's this... <laughs> my answer was going to be the bar in London that I, my, my corner pub that I got cut off at, I would visit them again because I'm, I'm 86. And so I because now you're back. allowed. It's the only way I'll get back in, uh, to go in. Which one was that? Which pub was that? Or do you not want to bring called, that up? It was called the three bells in North Harrow. And I had just moved in and I, I just, I, uh, I didn't have a good night there one night and I, I wasn't allowed back. And that doesn't normally happen to me. Uh, this is actually the only bar that I, I think I've ever been 86 from. So, so yeah, I would go back there. Harrow, bit of a uh, the what is that the uh, the u- there's a university up there. I'm forgetting which one it is. London has a couple, but there's a university up there, is it not? Bit of a studenty vibe. Uh, I believe it is. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't. I just was there for a couple months. Not that I'm saying that was you. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, clearly it was though. <laughs> but I was saying not that you were a student and that, at that point maybe. But um, all right, we we just spoke about dive bar here, so I got a question for you about that. What do you think is the one fundamental difference between a dive bar and a pub? Is there one? Maybe is the question that I should have asked first. 
I mean, to me, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know how often I heard about people using the word dive bar in the UK, for example. I'm not sure it seemed like a common term. I would almost say like when we say dive bar in the US, we're trying to evoke the connotation of what's kind of commonly understood to be a pub in the UK, you know, like this, this sort of unpretentious conviviality that accepts all, you know, maybe it's just dialect when you get down to it. Mm-hmm. No, that's a great point. No, and and you know, until I moved to the US, I'd never come across the concept of a dive bar. I'd seen them on movies, but I definitely had never heard the term used before before I came here. I don't know. I think there's something. There is a difference. I've never been able to put my finger on exactly what it is. Um, Agreed. Agreed. So I was curious yeah. for your. You know what I? You know what I think it might be, and and I'm just riffing here, so this might be completely wrong, but. At almost any dive bar in the U.S., you can expect to pull up a stool and sit at the bar. Ah. Uh. And most pubs, especially good ones, no one's sitting at the bar. Now, you might be stood there on a Friday evening when everyone's just spilled out of work and across the road into their local pub. But generally speaking, the etiquette is like, get the hell out of the bar so that other people can go and get drinks fast, Right. That is that is an excellent point. And then I think it opens it up to all these other things, right? Because I think about some of my fondest memories of discovering dive bars here in the US, which is like going on a random Wednesday evening when they had a deal on wings, watching baseball, which is new to me, and just sitting there <laughs> on my own. Like it's it's harder to drink at a pub on your own than I think it is at a dive bar. Again, maybe I'm wrong there, but that's that that just came I, to me now. I have been in some some pubs that if you had, uh, if you had, you know, transported them to the U S they would absolutely be a dive bar. I think maybe they're kissing cousins if they're not, if they're not the same. Browns in Shoreditch. I'm not sure that's a pub. <laughs> not asking anyone to look that one up by that. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. We'll move on. Uh, so that's the one you're choosing. North Harrow is your, your, yeah. your last bar. I mean, if I could go to any bar again, I would go to Marvel again. That was always my favorite bar in the world. So that's my real answer. Nice. Yeah, RIP. Final question for today, Pip. If you knew the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? Dry martini. I thought it was going to be that. And you know what I was going to say? I was going to say, what would be the 65 milliliters of gin and what would be the 25 of vermouth? Unless you're flipping it. Tell us about this Uh, martini. No, I, I don't. Yeah, it would definitely be, it would definitely be a gin forward. Um, yeah, 65, 25. Um, I, I, I reach for Tanqueray 10 and I know that's like a big commercial brand, but I tell you what, I have seen almost every bartender of name reach for Tanqueray 10 at some point in their career. Not, it feels like, so I'm going to, I'm going to stand by my, my, one of my favorite commercial mainstream sellout brand. No, yeah, and sorry to stop you here, but gin is one of those categories where I, I have no qualms in saying that the big guys are better than the smaller guys. I'm sorry, it's just true. It is often very true. So yeah, so I would get Tank 10 and then I would probably take a flight to France and pick up some of the Noy Pratt Dry mm. that is barrel aged, which they discontinued here in the US. And, uh, and if I couldn't do that, my friend Eric Seed imports some lovely Dolan uh, to this country. So I would be happy to use that too. I guess I would say finally uh, a dash of orange bitters and then ice out of the freezer, which I think is the, the key to a martini. Very nice. Yeah, it's a good one. No garnish there. Oh, certainly. Lemon twist. 
lemon twist. And that's making its way into the glass? It is make, yeah, yep. Uh, strain, yeah, stir the drink, strain it, uh, express over the top, and then drop it in so the oils on the surface float to the top of the drink. Fantastic stuff. And you know what? We're getting closer, not that close yet to, to 5 p.m. here, but we're getting there. And it's Thursday. <laughs> I'm starting to think. <laughs> so I say what? Pip, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Uh, it's been a wonderful episode. Appreciate your time. Hey, likewise. Thank you for having me. It's been a, a great time to be on here. Fantastic. We'll have to have you back someday, but cheers. I look forward to it. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Okay, I know what you're thinking, folks. That was a lot of info. But here's the good news. Every single episode of Vinepair's Cocktail College is published on vinepair.com as a transcript. So you can check it out there all over again. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seaside, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen, folks. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Grinberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.